Well, I know for many of you, if you were to tell your life story, there might be a chapter in it where there's a a villain, a a bad guy. Uh, And what I mean by that is somebody who sinned against you so greatly uh, that it destroyed the trust that you had between the two of you and shattered your relationship. Now, I know some of us hear something like that and we think, well, in my story, I am the villain. No one has inflicted more suffering and pain on me than I have on myself. And that's not what I mean this morning. I mean, perhaps there has been someone in your past that has caused you a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and has done so in a way that shattered the relationship that you were in. If that's you and you resonate with anyone or any of that, whether it be maybe a former employee that stole tens of thousands of dollars from you and ran off, or a father who just wasn't good to you and you haven't seen in a long time, an ex-spouse, anyone like this who was once in your life like that. Uh, This morning's story is going to ask a question that you may not want to ask, but I believe the Lord has some healing for you in it. And that question is, what do I do if they come back into my life? Sometimes, that person comes back. And sometimes they come back because they want something, and you've got to figure out what to do. Well, if you're just joining us, we are walking through the story of Joseph and his brothers, which is the last major section in the book of Genesis. This is a story in which the main person, Joseph, is made like Jesus in many ways that Christians are made like Jesus. And we have seen a lot happen to him so far. He was poised to rule in a great family, but his brothers were envious of him, and so they conspired against him. They sold him into slavery, and he was taken away to Egypt, where he lived as a slave, and then lived as a prisoner after that, but then was lifted up above everyone in the kingdom and now rules the entire kingdom. Seven years of plenty have come to the land under his leadership. And he knew that seven years of famine would follow it. And so he stored up much of the grain in the kingdom so that when the years of famine came, they would have enough to eat. And people from all over the world are coming to Joseph's courts to buy bread so that they can eat and live. The big twist this time, which we probably have seen coming if we do the math, is if everyone in the world is coming to Joseph to buy bread, that means his brothers come back. So now Joseph has to, with spirit-given wisdom, decide what to do. His response does at least two things for us. It teaches us much about Jesus and the character of the coming Messiah after him, as much of Joseph's conduct has done so far. And it gives us wisdom so that we can ask, well, what do I do if that person comes back into my life? How do I handle that with wisdom? Let's read most of Genesis chapter 42 together. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And then he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. 
And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring along your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul, and he begged us, and we did not listen, and that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen, and so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. And then he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill all their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And one of them opened his sack to give, donkey, to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place. And he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. We said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, the sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine for your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. 
And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Let's stop there. So through that story, the Spirit is doing at least two things. Again, first, he is showing us much of who Jesus Christ is and who he will be coming after Joseph. And then second, he's giving us wisdom to answer that difficult question, what if that person returns to my life, especially what if they return wanting something? So the story starts off back in the land of Canaan. Now, we haven't been there for a while. The story has been taking place in Egypt. We know that the famine has come over all of the land, and the narrator takes us and lets us see what's going on back in Joseph's homeland. We understand from that first paragraph that relations are still tense in the family back home. Two big ways we see that. First, the way that Jacob tells his sons to go and buy grain in Egypt is full of scolding. It is as if he is yelling at them, telling them to go and buy the grain. So we can see that the tension remains in their family. Not only that, he sends 10 brothers and he doesn't send Benjamin. That's telling also. If we remember back in the story, Jacob had sinned against God by taking four wives instead of one wife. And one of those wives, Rachel, was his favorite. So you can imagine how that played out in the health of their family going forward. Uh, When Rachel died, Rachel's son, Joseph, she also had another son, Benjamin, Rachel's son, Joseph, became Jacob's favorite. He showed favoritism to Joseph. This is what made the brothers envious of Joseph, what part of what moved them to sell him into slavery and get rid of him so that maybe they could rule in his place. Now that Joseph is gone, his brother Benjamin, well, Jacob won't send him with the rest of them. So Jacob is still playing favorites in the family. That's what that tells you. So there's still much tension back at home. Jacob is still playing favorites. Ten brothers journey to Egypt, and they go to buy grain before the Lord of the land. Now, we know from the last story that people would go to Pharaoh, and they would buy grain, but he would say, go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. And so we know what's going to happen then. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to buy grain. And who do they have to go before to get the grain? They have to go before Joseph, the brother they betrayed. Only they don't realize it because Pharaoh's given him a new name. 20 years have gone by. Joseph has grown up, and they don't understand what's happening. Joseph, however, recognizes them. And they say, we're from the land of Canaan. And he knows Canaan. That's his hometown. So he starts watching this play out. He doesn't reveal who he is. And pretty quickly, he realizes, wait a minute. I have 11 brothers. There are only 10 brothers here. And if we were to think of, after they get rid of Joseph, who would they hate next? Probably Rachel's other son, Benjamin. He's looking at these 10 brothers, and for all he knows, maybe they've killed Benjamin too. These are, after all, the ruthless men who threw him into a pit, were going to kill him, decided to sell him into slavery instead, and then pretended to tell their father that he had died so that their father would believe that he had died. So he looks at them, and he does not know, are these the same ruthless men that did that to me? And have they now done it to Benjamin? Or have they changed? 
And so he, with spirit-given wisdom, as we have seen in the previous chapters, he is a man full of wisdom, wisdom given to him by God. He devises a test to find out, are they really honest? Have they really changed? Or are they the same kind of guys, and do I need to not reveal who I am to them and just let them go on their way? So he does this. He holds one of them in custody. He sends the other ten back, and he says, I'll believe you if you bring your other brother to me. On the way out, he gives them all of the grain they need, so he's very generous to them. He makes sure all the household is fed. And not only that, but he has the money put back into their sacks. Then he gives them ample supplies for the journey back. So three ways he's generous to them here. He chooses to sell them grain when he doesn't have to. He gives them the money back, and then he gives them enough supplies to make it back. This has a dual purpose of showing generosity to them, but also it kind of puts them in a difficult situation. They find the money snuck back into their bags, and they're afraid because maybe he thinks we stole it from him. And maybe when we come back, he will accuse us not of being spies, but of being thieves. And so then we'll be put in prison. So they have a choice to make. They can either abandon their brother to prison, make out with the money and the grain and all of the supplies, and go back, tell their father Jacob that Benjamin died along the way too, like they did for Joseph, and live rich and happy lives in the midst of the famine, which is exactly what the brothers would have done 20 years ago, the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Or they can bring Benjamin to Egypt at risk of their lives in order to get Simeon back. So will they sacrifice themselves? Will they risk their own lives for the sake of their brother? Or will they abandon their brother like they did before? Now all he's got to do is watch which one they do, and he can tell. Have they changed or have they not changed? This teaches one principle that is uh, taught many times in the Scripture of the Lord and of Christians. Uh, and, and it's over this whole story, and everything I have to tell you the story will be, will be part of this principle. And, and it's this. God's anointed one will be generous to his enemies, and he will reconcile with those who repent. This is how Joseph conducts himself here. He is generous towards his enemies before he even knows whether they have changed or whether they are new people. Also, if he can see evidence that they have changed and he can restore a relationship with them, he stands ready to reconcile with them, ready to reveal himself and be brothers again with them. We will see as time goes on that this is true of the Lord as well, and this is true of Jesus, God's anointed one. He is generous to everyone and stands open and ready to reconcile with those who turn from their sin and come back to him. Let me take that in two parts, and then we'll unpack much else that is in the story. God's heart toward even his enemies is abundantly generous. Now, we've got a picture of that in the grain that is heaped upon these brothers, the money that has been put in their sacks, and then the provisions for the journey home, which are given to them as they go out. The Lord does this to those who hurt him as well, to those who have betrayed him as well. You might remember Jesus' words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. 
Uh, it's less often remembered what comes right after that. Why are we to love our enemies? He says, well, because your father causes the sun to shine upon the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. And he brings the rain to water the crops of both the good and the evil, right? So when the Lord causes the sun to rise in the morning, the, the rays of sunshine are given out freely to everybody. He does not say you have been good today and you have not been good today and so the sun shines for you and not for you. No, he just causes the sun to shine and give life to all. And all of us, whether we love the Lord or whether we hate the Lord, we can go to the grocery store, buy groceries, we can grow tomatoes in our backyard and the rain will fall on our lawn. The Lord is good to those who love him and he is good to those who do not love him as well because he's open-handed and he is generous. Every breath that we have ever taken, the Lord gives to us. And every meal we have ever eaten, the Lord gives to us. And he does that to those who love him and those who do not. That means that every blasphemous shout that has ever been bellowed against the Lord's name was shouted with a breath that God gave that person. And in almost every case, the Lord gave them another breath right after that. That's how generous he is. There may be someone right now in downtown Indy sitting at a Starbucks just railing against how hateful and bigoted Christians are and how awful the God of the Bible is, holding in their hand a latte that God gave them. And when they leave, they'll go and, and get a refill and God will give them that refill, too. This tells us something of the Lord's character. We can rail against him, but his heart remains generous toward us. And that means that if you're here today and you have spent much of your energy in your life railing against the Lord's teachings, uh, calling his people bigots while harboring bigotry toward them yourselves, uh, if you've been speaking against the Lord's name, using his name in vain, you can walk out today and still receive all of his generosity because he's open-handed and generous. You do not even have to turn and come to Christ today to receive that generosity for the rest of your life. Now, your appointed time will come. Death and judgment will come for you, and you will answer for all of it. But until then, the Lord will cause the sun to shine on you. He will cause the rain to water your crops. He will provide for you every day for the rest of your life because he is generous to everyone, whether we will turn and receive him or whether we will not. That's the first half of it. The Lord is generous even toward his enemies. But what's more than that, he is willing and ready to reconcile with those who will turn and who will receive him. That's the flip side of it. The way that sin works is it shatters and destroys relationships. You can probably think back to some of the relationships in your past and say, yeah, that's true. That's what sin does. It's destroyed relationships in my past. For us to rebel against God and sin against him, it shatters that relationship. He stands ready, though, to reconcile if we are willing to turn back to him. And he has made a way for that to happen. He has sent his son who has lived without sin, who has died to pay for sins, who has risen to guarantee eternal life for all who would turn and who would trust in him. 
And so Jesus is able to say to the city that is turning against him and about to crucify him, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as as a hen gathers her chicks and her wings, but you were not willing. Because he was was open and ready, open-handed, open-armed and ready to receive them. And the words that John the Baptist says to prepare the way for Jesus to come are, are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means turn around and come back for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus stands up to preach and, and his message is the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here he is calling everyone on earth, everyone who hears this gospel message, turn from sin and come back to me. I have made a way. And if you're willing to turn, If you're willing to go back to him, he will receive you. So he's generous to everyone. And if you walk out today saying, no, I don't want that, he'll still be generous to you. He's ready to reconcile with anyone who would turn back and through the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ, receive him. And so the call I make to you today is receive him. Turn back, turn from sin and receive salvation and reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. If you do, you will find once again intimacy with the God that made you. Once again, a friendship as his child and his friend. Uh, Once again, forgiveness even for your sins and being able to call him father. There's this and so much more waiting for all those who would turn back and receive him. So that's the main thing we learn through Joseph's actions here. Generosity to all, reconciliation with those willing to turn back. Now, in Genesis, we often learn different lessons by following different characters through the story. So I'm going to break from Joseph here and walk through this story through the eyes of the brothers, because we learn two more things about Jesus following this story through the eyes of the brothers. First, we see in verse 6 that the brothers, though they don't realize it at the time, they wind up going before the one that they hated and and bowing down before him. We see that in verse 6 of the story. And then there's this very interesting moment in verses 21 and 22, and there are other echoes of this other places in the story, where they begin to realize that God's justice is real, and it's as if a reckoning is coming back upon them. Let me read verse 21 and 22 to you. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So here these men are, realizing that what they have done in the past is revisiting them. It is coming back upon them in God's hand of providence, and they are trembling as they realize, oh, God saw that, and he remembers it. So with these two details in the story, we learn a little bit more about Jesus. We learn that those who hated him will tremble when they realize that God sees their sins, and they will bow before him. This fateful day has come where here they are bowing before the one they hated. And here they are realizing that God remembers everything and it is coming back upon them. And a day like that will come for everyone who has ever sinned against God. 
where suddenly we are brought into the presence of the great high and holy one, and we will bow. And where all that we have done in the past will be collected and we will realize it hangs over us like a cloud because the Lord saw it. Now, this happens different ways for different people, different ways for those who will not come to Jesus to receive forgiveness and for those who will. So let me outline it first. For, for those who will not come to Christ and receive forgiveness, what will that day look like? Uh, well, John chapter 5 says that God has handed all judgment over to Jesus Christ uh, so that all will respect him, so that all will revere him. And so the one who, who does the final judging of the whole earth, it, it's Jesus now. God has handed that to his son. And Colossians 3 lists all of the terrible things we have done and says, on account of this, the wrath of God is coming. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord on that day. So we have this picture of a day where those who have not received the Lord's grace, uh, first, uh, at, at the moment they die, it says it's appointed for man to die once and after this judgment, uh, we will go before Jesus himself and bow and have all that we have done revisited upon us and receive a sentence for what we have done. And then, at the resurrection of the dead, when he returns, a final judgment even, very similar. And in that day, if you are there in that day, you will feel what these brothers felt. Oh, God saw that. Oh, God remembers Oh, it's coming back upon me. I can feel what I have done come back upon me. We just have a little flicker of that in the trembling of these brothers who realize that their sins are coming back upon them. Now, that's how this plays out for those who will not receive the grace of Jesus. How does it play out for those who do receive the grace of Jesus? We experience those things just in a very different way. What happens to us is at some point in our lives, the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts us of our sin. Often it's when we're hearing the preached word of God. Sometimes it's other places as well. We will be sitting there. I can remember points in my life where I was sitting in a pew or in a chair at a summer camp realizing, oh, the Lord saw that. Oh, what I do matters. I'm my 12-year-old self thinking, what I do matters. The Lord cares what I do. One way this has been said in the past is that the Lord often plows the heart before he plants the seed. Uh, the Lord shows to us our sinfulness and his holiness and the truth of the coming judgment. And we begin to look these things square in the eye and we say, this is real and I have a problem. And then the seed of the gospel is sown. Christ died for sinners. Christ rose to give eternal life for sinners. And because we sense that our sin is real and judgment is real, we are ready to grab on to that gospel message. So, so God often plows the heart before he plants the seed. Similarly, I, uh, I just planted a garden a week ago, and some of you are planting yours right now or maybe just planted yours. Uh, and 
because many have taught me well, I knew that I couldn't just throw the beans that I had onto the hard clay soil. They wouldn't take if I did that, right? So three weeks beforehand, I got a shovel out and I put it in the ground and I turned over all that dirt. And then a week after that, two weeks before I planted, I went and got the tiller, fired the tiller up and just tore into that dirt, loosened it all up. And then two weeks after that, the day I planted, I got the tiller out again and tore through the dirt again and loosened it up again. And now it was ready to receive the seeds. And so we took the tomato plants and put them in and we took the bean, I guess there are the bean seeds, beans, I don't know what you call them. We took them and we put them into the ground just like you're supposed to because the ground was finally ready to receive that seed. This is how the Lord treats our hearts as well. If you're not convinced that you're a sinner, If you're not convinced that what we do matters and God cares what we do and judgment is real, and if that's not a problem to you in your heart, then when a preacher gets up and he says Christ died for sinners, you can be saved from sin and judgment, that's not going to matter to you. You're going to receive that message like the ground, the hard clay would receive those seeds without being tilled first. And so the Lord often plows the heart. He shows us our sinfulness. He shows us the reality of judgment. And then the seed of the gospel comes and we are ready to receive it. So that means that most of you can probably pinpoint a few moments or one moment when you came to Christ, when you looked at the reality and trembled a little in heart, like the brothers trembled here and said, oh, judgment is real. I have a problem and I need to be saved. So that's what I mean when I say that one way or another, everyone experiences this. We either experience it as we come to Christ to receive grace, or if we will not then, we experience it on the last day. And those are just a few things that the brothers show to us. We are left then like those brothers. And the question before you is, will will you repent? Will you turn? And will you come back to Jesus? Is your heart ready to receive the gospel message? You'll know because if you are, you will cling to it. So come to Jesus, receive the seed of the gospel, and find in it new life. Okay, let's pivot back to Joseph. We'll spend the rest of the morning just talking about the wisdom that Joseph uses to discern how do I handle these brothers who once abused me and have now come back into my life wanting something. Can I trust them again? What does forgiveness look like? These and many other questions we'll look at. Now, I hope you can see that we're dealing here with serious relationship-ending sin. Uh, All relationships have a certain amount of you sin against each other, you forgive each other. But sometimes it's so great that it shatters trust, ends the relationship, and things are just difficult. This is the kind of thing that we are talking about. So we look at what Joseph does here. And the narrator gives us no reason to fault Joseph. He was, in fact, the king over all of Egypt and had very much the authority to to judge and to say, no, I don't think you were telling the truth. No, I think you are telling the truth. And the Proverbs say that it is the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to search things out. This is a wise king searching out the truth to find out if these men are trustworthy. 
Proverbs also say that the purpose of a man's heart is a deep water, but a man of understanding can draw it out. So Joseph is applying his understanding, his wisdom, to draw out the purpose of these brothers' hearts and learn, are they trustworthy? Can I once again live with them as brothers and be fully reconciled to them? If they're the same guys that sold him into slavery, no, he can't do that. But if they changed, safe to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at his wisdom and we will apply it to two different stories, hoping that if you have a story like this, you, you can use those details and apply it to your story. So let's say first that a husband and wife are married for a number of years and over the years the wife develops a gambling addiction and she hides it from her husband uh, and it becomes a big enough deal that she secretly flies to Las Vegas gambles away $5,000, flies back, and her husband doesn't catch her. And so she does it again, and this time loses $10,000 and comes back. Uh, and this time, he catches on to her. He confronts her. Uh, she says, okay, okay, I won't do it anymore. A month later, she flies to Vegas again with the deed to the house and gambles the house away. Comes back, says, I'm sorry. I did it again, leaves in embarrassment and shame and won't come back. So there's one setup, right? Uh, it, it, here's another one. Let's say there's a father uh, who throughout a, an entire childhood has a cycle of getting drunk, uh, hitting his wife, leaving the wife and kids, coming back when the money runs out, asking, acting nice for a little bit, but then getting drunk again, hitting mom again, leaving until the money runs out again, over and over, like a revolving door, through one person's entire childhood. And now, that former child is 45 years old, and dad calls and says, I've been sober for six months. I don't know how many years I have left, but I want to have a relationship with you. What's, what's that 45-year-old former child do? Well, let's look at Joseph's wisdom and see if he gives wisdom for either one of them. Uh, these situations can be confusing because not immediately trusting them again feels like you're being unforgiving. And in fact, sometimes people like this can be very manipulative and can make you feel like you are being unforgiving if you don't immediately give them everything that they want. But Joseph gives us some wisdom. The main principle, again, is reconcile with them if you can be confident they've changed. Be generous to them either way. This is what Christian forgiveness looks like. It means even if you can tell they haven't changed a bit, generosity toward them. And if they've changed to the point that you can have a functioning relationship again, be ready to reconcile and receive them back. We can remember again Jesus' words, right? Uh, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and then you'll be children of your Father in heaven who causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil, causes the rain to water the crops of the just and the unjust. Likewise, us, if the person never changes, we may not be able to maintain a good relationship with them, but we can still show generosity to them if the opportunity presents itself. Practically, that means wanting the best for them, no matter what. That means praying for them. If they haven't repented, praying that God would bring repentance to them, and that they would turn, that they would receive grace, and have even a very good life under God's lordship. And practically, it means that if a way comes up that you can help them 
And it's safe to do so. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes you can to take any opportunity that you can to help them. So that means for that husband whose wife had once gambled the whole house away and now has come back saying, I got help, I'm better now, can we reconcile? It means that he does not want her out on the street no matter what happens. It means that his heart toward her says, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I have been praying for you for so long. It means for the 45-year-old who's dad just called and said, hey, let's have coffee, uh, saying, oh, dad, I, I can't believe it, but I've been praying that this would happen. Uh, and looking at dad and saying, does dad need anything? Is he okay? Is he on his own? Is he, is he lost all of his money? Or what does he need? How can I care for him? It means showing an earnest care for, concern for, and generosity, even before you can figure out whether they have really changed or not. Then, second half, being ready to reconcile if you can be confident that they have changed. Luke says, really plainly, quoting Jesus, uh, if your brother sins against you and then turns and repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times and then turns back and repents, forgive him. And that's kind of the short version of how Matthew quotes maybe the same words or the same teaching. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And if he listens to you, you've won him over, right? The goal is to see him turn and repent so you can be brothers again. But if not, then bring two or three with you and see if you can persuade him to repent and to turn. And if that doesn't work, bring the whole church, right? And see if you can persuade together the entire church body, persuade them to turn. Because what we want is for them to turn so we can be brothers again and be reconciled. But if they still won't, even after the whole church confronts them, then love them like you love an outsider, right? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, love them like you love an outsider. And so he's drawing the lines clear that he's aware that if people don't turn from great relationship-destroying sins, you can't practically have a relationship anymore. And so at times you have to discern, okay, have they changed? Can I trust them again? Or are they playing me like they played me before? And that's where Joseph's wisdom helps them, helps us so much. One principle we gain from him is to carefully discern their repentance and their trustworthiness. We owe everybody on earth our love, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But you do not owe everyone on earth your trust. If someone is not trustworthy, you do not have to trust them, right? And so we've got to discern carefully, as Joseph has done here for his brothers, can I trust this person? Can I let this person back into my life in the way that I had before? The main way that Joseph shows us here how we can do that is, well, let me back up and we'll contrast what we look like before we turn from sin and what we look like after. Ephesians 1 and 2 say that before we came to Christ, we were ruled by the desires of our body and our mind, uh, which basically means that we were doing what we wanted to do. If you saw a piece of cake, the calculation would be, do I want the cake more or do I want the good-looking body more? Which one do I want more? The one I want more is going to govern whether I eat the piece of cake or not. But then we're called away from that. We turn from sin to loving God 
and loving others, right? And so the old heart and the old man says, how am I going to get what I want? Get what I want at all costs while maintaining whatever image and appearance I need to. The new man says, love God, love neighbors. This is what the Lord has called me to do. And so now we look at a piece of cake and we ask, well, would it honor God more if I ate the piece of cake and thanked God for it? Or would it love my loved ones more if I cared for my body and didn't eat the cake and lived longer and could serve everybody, right? We're making the same decisions, but we're making them out of love for God and love for others. And so the main difference before repentance and after repentance is, am I living to get what I want at any cost, or am I living out of love for God and love for others? The way this often plays out in abuse-type situations is the person who has committed the abuse will begin to love and sacrifice for others in a situation where they aren't in control anymore. Now, not being in control of the situation is hard for anybody, right? None of us like not being in control. It is nearly impossible to bear for the kinds of people who commit these great relationship-breaking sins. And so one of the big changes you see is that they go from, I have to have my way, things that I have to be in control, I need to get what I want, I'm going to put pressure on people so that they will give me what I want, to, okay, I don't have to be in control, this doesn't have to go my way, I'm just here to help you, to love you, to take care of you. That is why the core of Joseph's test is, will they just run off with the money and abandon their brother, like someone governed by their appetites would do, like the old brothers would do, or will they risk themselves and sacrifice themselves to rescue their brother? Are they living to satisfy their desires, or are they living out of love for God and love for others? This is what Joseph tests out. So the thing to watch for is whether they are still governed by their desires, whether they're putting pressure on you to get what they want, or whether they are giving up control and acting out of love for God and love for others. Let's apply that to those two stories. Let's go to the the wife that's coming back to her husband after having gambled the house away. She comes back And what he's got to be watching for is, okay, before she wanted to get as much money as she could so she could gamble, or she was hooked on gambling. So is she after the bank account, or is she after loving others? And so they might start to have coffee again together. They might start to talk again together. And the point might come where he says to her, okay, darling, I'm ready for you to move back in. I'm ready for us to have a functioning marriage again. But... For another year or two, why don't I control all the finances? Just just so it doesn't happen again. Does she respond by putting pressure on him to try to get a hold of the money? This is my right. You can't keep my money from me. What's yours is mine. Or does she respond by sacrificing and saying, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Life is going to be so much easier for you. will have so much more peace of mind if I don't touch any of the money. That might be the difference between somebody who's willing to sacrifice and somebody who is trying to get everything that they want. Let's apply that to the dad who comes back into the 45-year-old's life. There might come a point where the 45-year-old says, Dad, I hope this is real. 
but I'm going to need some time here because I lost count of how many times I saw you come home, promise mom you had changed, and then just get drunk and hurt her and leave again. So what if we take this really, really slowly? Now, a dad who is living out of love for others and honor for God and humility over his own sins is going to say, yeah, that's just fine. I'll, I'll prove myself to you over the long run. Someone who is after something is going to respond by putting pressure on you, right? Making you feel guilty, making you feel bad. So with the wisdom of Joseph, with spirit-given wisdom in time, you can start to discern what are their motives and can I trust them again? Can I reconcile with them? Can we have a full and functioning relationship again? There are other tells that aren't in the story. Questions to ask would be, are they being fully honest about everything that they did? Right? Repentance means not hiding your sin anymore. So if they're coming back and they're telling you what happened and then you learn that a little bit more actually happened, then you learn that a little bit more actually happened. This is someone who is hiding their sin. If they come back and they say, all right, here's what you knew that I did and here's what you didn't know that I did and I'm sorry for that too. There's somebody who's not trying to hide their sin. Another question to ask would be, are they like Zacchaeus, trying to restore anything that they took and they can restore? Zacchaeus comes to Christ and he says, everything that I stole, I will give back even more, right? That's because he wants to give back what he had taken. He knew it was wrong and he's willing to admit that it was wrong. Oftentimes, people who turn from great sins like that, they're not trying to get something. They're instead saying, okay, what can I give back? You know, how can I restore what I took? from you. These and many other ways we can tell uh, with God-given wisdom. Has this person changed? One last piece of wisdom I want to give you from verse 24. It almost surprises us in 24. Then he turned away from them and he wept. And then he returned to them and he spoke to them. So Joseph is playing the part of the high and lofty Egyptian official, and he is strong in this story. He's wise in this story. And yet, it is very emotional for him. And so we see him for a moment here just break and say, I need a minute. And he goes and he cries and he comes back. That teaches us then if that person comes back into your life, if you're dealing with it, I probably don't even have to tell you just from reading your faces right now, but expect it to be emotional. It will be emotional. And you may be telling yourself, okay, I can't handle this well. I can't deal with this wisely. I can't be strong because it's so emotional for me. And if that's what you're feeling, I just encourage you, look to Joseph, who is emotional and strong and wise. So here we have proof right here that with God's help and the Spirit of God, you can be emotional, strong, and wise at the same time. Now, wisdom controls emotions, right? And, and he does not break in front of them. He knows he needs to go away from them and then break and then come back. Like he knows just what he is doing and he's got control over his feelings and how he expresses them. But the fact that they are there does not make him weak and does not make him foolish. So expect it to be emotional. Okay. 
I think we can all sense here that if we're in a situation like that, it's going to take wisdom, right? It's going to take spirit-given wisdom, more wisdom than any of us have in our hearts right now. And so if you're thinking, you know, that day might come in a particular situation, my final word for you is look to the Lord and ask him for wisdom daily. Joseph grew in wisdom over 20 years into the kind of man that can handle a situation like this. In time, if you seek the wisdom of the Bible and if you seek the Lord's wisdom, asking him for it, he can grow you that wisely as well. So if all of this intimidates you and makes you think, how could I ever stand that? You can with God's help. So begin seeking his wisdom today. Let's pray and ask him for that.